So I, uh, you know, went to college and uh, root for a team that uh, basically is terrible at basketball. So I don't pay attention to college basketball. I have no idea what's going on. Has the tournament started yet? Does anybody know? Like, does is, is Kansas play sometime or? Nothing the 8 o'clock crowd booed me better than that. I mean, come on. I expected more out of you all. <laughs> what's that? Uh, playing softball. We just skip basketball season altogether where we're at, so. I am curious uh, this morning, how many of you all uh, grew up in a small town? Okay, quite a few of you. How many of you grew up, you know, bigger city, metro area, whether that's here or somewhere else? Yeah, a lot of you too. I grew up in a small town as well, a town called Miami, Oklahoma, spelled like Miami, pronounced like Miami. I don't really have time this morning to explain why, uh, just, it, it's, it's a long story. Uh, but the town I grew up in, if you get on the Highway 69 and go straight south, as soon as you cross the state line, basically you're there, it's just straight down the road. And uh, growing up in a town like that, I, I joked that we are actually kind of the metropolis of our county. Um, of the uh, 27 or so thousand people that call Ottawa County home, we have half of them. So we have Walmart, we have McDonald's, where were people come, you know, for life? And, and so I, I give Jennifer a hard time that she's from one of our suburbs. Um, you know, when you're a town of 12,000, the towns around you that have a thousand in them are your suburbs. But um, yeah, that's where I grew up. And if you grew up in a small town, you understand <clears throat> there are pros and cons to growing up in a small town. Uh, the cons are usually pretty obvious. There's not much to do, right, when you're in a small town. There's not many places to eat. In fact, when we were in high school, uh, really you had three options for entertainment if you wanted to go do something there in, in Miami. Uh, one was you would try to sneak into one of the casinos underage. Uh, number two, you'd go to Walmart and loiter until you got kicked out. Or number three, you would go to Sonic, get something to drink, and then go hang out in the Ace parking lot across the street uh, until the cops came and ran you off. Occasionally, you would go to Sonic and hit on the car hops, and they would turn you down, and then like 10 years later, decide they wanted to marry you. Um, you know, the old American tale, right? But that's kind of what you do in a small town. We go back to visit our small uh, hometown now. Uh, you know, again, there's just still not a whole lot to go do outside of being with family. There aren't many, uh, many places to eat, at least uh, many options to eat. There's a few fast food places. Uh, there's a pizza hut. There is uh, a steakhouse, a couple of Mexican restaurants. That's really about it. You know, just a few options that you get to pick from. So, I mean, the, the, the cons of living in a small town are pretty obvious. But the pros of living in a small town are usually the fact that you, you know everybody. And not just know them, but you know them pretty well. I mean, sometimes you might say, well, that's actually a con too, because you know a little too much about people. But you get to know people. I grew up, uh, we were very creative in how we named streets, but I grew up on a street called F Street. Um, we had numbers that went one direction and letters that went another direction. And I was on F Street Northwest growing up in my hometown of Miami. I grew up half a block from the grade school I went to. And we just kind of ran that neighborhood. We would go to the school and play in the park, uh, playground and baseball field all the time. Uh, I'd come home after school, wait for my parents to get home. My best friend Ty lived just around the corner on E Street, um, one street closer to the middle of town than I was. I'd go over to his house all the time in the summer and play baseball in his front yard. He had this big old two-story house, had a balcony on it. That was our upper deck. If you could hit it into the balcony, it was a home run. 
um, next door to us, we had this couple, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wiley. They were an older couple. We really didn't know them very well. They, they kind of stayed in. He was a retired pharmacist. They had this really funky but cool, big, huge house on the corner. Um, like the houses that, where we grew up, they were built in the, the 20s and teens. They're old houses. We didn't know them real well, but their daughter married a missionary to France, and, and that's where they live. Them and their three kids uh, still live there. I think he's passed on, but, but um, she still lives there, and, and their kids were our age. So when they would come back and visit over the summer, we'd get to hang out with their kids. There was a daughter named Rachel that was a couple years older than me, a son named Steph that was around my age, and we, we thought it would be cool and teach them how to be Americans. You know, things like baseball or disrespecting your elders. You know, the things us Americans do all the time really well, right? We would teach them that. There was a lady across the street named Mrs. Schaub who uh, would let me come over and she made cookies like every day. Let me come over and get cookies. And uh, I would come home after school and, and we would be there till our, our parents got home. Sometimes my dad would get home 30 or 45 minutes later. Sometimes my mom would get home an hour or so later. But this is going to blow your mind. Sometimes when I was a kid, I would forget my key and be locked out of the house. You know, I know kids never do that like anymore, but I'd forget my key. Mrs. Schaub would let me hang out on her porch and, and eat cookies till my dad got home a little bit later. Uh, we had this couple that moved in next to us just before we left uh, called the Hamps, and um, they were a Mennonite family. And I don't know where they had come from, but I mean, culturally, even in a small town, about as different as you could be. So uh, their oldest son, we decided to teach him how to play baseball um, one year, and it went horribly because uh, I didn't realize that I needed to hit a grounder softly to him, and it bounced up and hit him in the face and broke his glasses and, and you know, gave him a red spot on his eye. And my mom made me feel really bad about it. And I mean, like, I did. And I'm like, you, you should have, at least you blocked it, you know. My mom made me feel really bad, and, and you know, we, we were just trying to help him learn how to play it. But that's, that's life, you know, in a small town, right? If you grew up in a small town or in a tight-knit neighborhood, you probably got a similar story to that. You look at neighborhoods and where you're from, and, and it helps you, I think, understand what it means to look at somebody as a neighbor. You know, we have been in our neighborhood here for now going on a year and a half, and, and we're getting to know some of our neighbors. and. Uh, we've met a lot of people in our neighborhood that are friendly, that we like, very different types of people than we are, and that, that's great, and that's awesome. Where we're at here and in, in living down in Olathe, life is so busy for all of us that it's really hard to spend a lot of time investing in each other's lives. We've been in this series called Adverbs now. This is our fourth week of it, and, and we're exploring these core values that we're setting out and, and tacking an adverb onto each statement. Today's adverb is passionately. And the statement to go along with the adverb passionately is that we will passionately love our neighbors as ourselves. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We've gone through a few other statements so far. We will relentlessly pursue a deeper and more transforming relationship with Christ. We will genuinely practice authenticity and unity in our worship. Last week we said we will uh, eagerly serve others. Today we will passionately love our neighbor as ourselves. We at, at Crossroads, we believe in and we follow the great commandment of Jesus to love God and to love our neighbors. We believe our primary reason for existence is for the sake of those who are not yet part of the body of Christ. It's our intention that all should experience Jesus and grow in maturity to become fully transformed, committed, and reproducing followers of Christ. So we challenge everyone, all of our members, all of our attendees, anyone who calls Crossroads home, we challenge you to share your faith with those around you through love, through action, 
and through words. I've been blessed in the last few years to really get to know several pastors. Some of them are some big-name pastors you might have heard of. Some of them are, are pastors you haven't heard of. But I've just been blessed to kind of get introduced and, and network with some pastors that are out there. And, and several years ago, I heard this phrase come up, and I don't even really know who said it to begin with. Uh, I know some of pastors will credit Rick Warren with saying this. Some will, will credit uh, Don Wilson, who was a pastor in Arizona for a long time, with saying this. But across the board, when you start asking some of these pastors, what's the difference between a good church or a great church or just a mediocre church? I heard this phrase that just really stuck out with me. And they said, I don't know necessarily how you can define a mediocre or even a good church. But a great church, they said, if you want to be a great church, you have to combine the great commission with the great commandment. Now, we hear this statement a lot. And, and you, might, you might know what the great commission is. We say it a lot. It's in Matthew 28 when Jesus tells his disciples, go into the world, go to all the world, and make disciples of all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This great mission statement that Jesus basically gives the church, and all across the country, all across the world, you're going to see churches where their church mission statement is basically some reworded version of that. That's what ours is. It's just a reworded version of the great commission statement of Jesus. But the, those pastors will tell you a great church doesn't just stop there. It combines that great commission with the great commandment. You're curious what the great commandment is. Well, Jesus was asked two different times, what's the most important commandment? And the answer was the same both times. But the first of those two times was early in his ministry while he's in Capernaum. If you've got a Bible, we're going to camp out in Luke chapter 15 today. You can follow along there. It's on the screens if you don't have one. But in Luke 15, we see an interaction that takes place that ultimately leads to one of the most famous stories in the Bible that people who don't even know the Bible have, have probably heard of. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. I'm going to pause for a second before I finish this out because this is an interesting story. And if you just read it and read straight through it, you're like, oh, well done, guy. But when you stop and kind of reread it, it starts to stand out. Like, I always read things, and I've got a little bit of a skeptical point of view, because I, I assume some people that are doing things are doing them from a skeptical point of view. And this guy asks Jesus a question. Jesus doesn't ask the guy the question. He asks Jesus the question, and Jesus just flips it back. Okay, you've asked me, you answer it. The man answers it perfectly. Okay, why was this guy asking? He obviously already knew the answer. And I love the last little bit there. It says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, okay, so who's my neighbor? This is something that I think when we look at, it's easy, I think, for us to set and point at people in the Bible, especially if they wear the title of Pharisee, or in this case, an expert of the law, which was kind of the same thing here. It's easy to point at these people and say, well, they're just wanting Jesus to, to agree with them. Man, I can't believe they would do that. And again, I'm really glad this only happened in Bible times and it doesn't happen anymore in our culture, churches today, right? 
We do the same thing, right? How often do we go to Jesus and ask him a question, wanting, expecting, or hoping for an answer that affirms what we already think, believe, or want to be true? We do this all the time. It's the same reason I think so many of us watch a certain news channel, because we want to see things for affirmation more than information, and we go to Jesus and God for affirmation more sometimes than we go for transformation. See, I think he wanted Jesus to give him an answer that justifies what he already believes. He wasn't looking for Jesus' honest opinion. He was asking because he wanted to know exactly how far he had to go to please God. I think, again, sometimes I think we do the same thing, especially when it comes to getting pushed out of our comfort zones. And one of our biggest comfort zones is the people that we associate or interact with. Think about this. We like to associate and interact with people who are like us, who are maybe not just like us, but a lot like us. If I spend my time with people who are, boy, a lot like me, they're wired like me, they think like me, they talk like me, maybe they're from the same place as me, there's a whole lot less chance of disagreement, especially when it comes to divisive topics. I'm much more likely to get along with and agree with and have no major issues with my people than those people. Anybody else relate to that? What happens when we do this is we look for Jesus to give us an answer to justify building a wall that will separate and divide a world that Jesus came to save. I think about this a lot because when, when we do this, we fly directly in the path of one of the parts of the mission that Jesus told us to go do. Remember last week I said that Jesus told his disciples, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And three times Jesus explained why he came. One of those is in Luke chapter 19 when he says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It does not say the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are just like you or those who are just like me. No, it came to save all of us. But too often that's what we do. We try to build people around us, a community around us, a bubble around us. Maybe we even try to build a church of people who are just like we are. And again, I think it's easy for us to point fingers at this legal expert, this expert of the law, but often we are much the same. And what gets me when I read this story isn't so much that Jesus replied, but it's how Jesus replies. Because I just kind of picture this. This man asked Jesus a question, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, what do you think it is? The man answers perfectly, you're correct. And then he goes, but, you know, who's my neighbor after all? Just kind of picture Jesus pulling up a stool, taking a seat, and going, sit down, I'm going to tell you a story. Because here's the story Jesus tells him in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 30. It says, in reply, Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. We're going to pause for just a second and break the context of this open just a little bit. Because the two people that are mentioned here, a priest and a Levite, let's put this into our terms here. This is a pastor and an elder of the church. This is me and let's just say Mr. Fogo over here. That's if we're putting this story into our context here. These are the two guys that pass by this man who's been beaten and left for dead. And let's add one more wrinkle to this. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
Jericho's north of Jerusalem, okay? Now, I don't know about you, when I say we're going down somewhere, it means we're going south. If I say we're going up, we're going north. That's just kind of my directions. I don't ever say we're going up to Oklahoma. We're going down to Oklahoma. They're coming up here to Kansas City. Like, that's my mindset. I, I just look at a map, I guess. But Jerusalem, again, is south of Jericho, but it's at a higher elevation, You'll see this a lot of times in the Gospels. It's an interesting little play on words. They go up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. Well, if somebody's going to Jericho, specifically three people are going to Jericho from Jerusalem on the same day, logic tells you they have just left the temple. So let's add another wrinkle to this. Not only is this myself and Mr. Fogo passing by you laying dead on the side of the road, we're leaving church. Like This is like an hour from now as we're all on the way home. We see you, and we pass by. Not only do we not pass by, we walk way over here out of the way to kind of almost in our minds pretend like we never even saw you there. Like I used to do this with with my kids when they were, you know, still in diapers. I might smell it, but I would claim, pretend like I'd ever, like, were you going to change your son? Oh, did he do something? I never noticed. (laughs) Okay, I think back to, to uh, like sometimes when I'm at the store, I'll, I'll just be honest with you, sometimes I'm at the store, Walmart especially, that place brings out just my absolute worst moods, okay? I try to avoid people. So I may see somebody, maybe, maybe it's one of you all, I'm sorry. I'll go like two aisles out of the way. Like I don't have the energy for this right now. Like back when COVID hit, you know, and you had to, to go one person at a time down each aisle. Like, I'm built for this, man. Like, I, I can do this. I can avoid people in the grocery store with the best of them, right? That's what these guys do. They go so far out of the way. I mean, almost like they might have gone down a different road. Not so they can avoid this person, but so they can almost pretend like they never even saw him laying there. That's what's happening here. And here's the biggest part of this. When, when Jesus was having this conversation with this expert of the law, and the expert of the law said, well, who's my neighbor? Most likely, these are the two people he's going to claim were his neighbor, this priest and this Levite. It goes on in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and he saw him, and he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Just real quick on the context here, because a Samaritan, we hear that name, and what do we associate it with? The story of the Good Samaritan. And we've taken that label and applied it to things all across our world today that are for good. There's hospitals called the Good Samaritan Hospital. There's a charitable uh, relief organization based out of Oklahoma City called Samaritan's Purse that goes all over the country with convoys of semis bringing relief and, and, and goods to people who have suffered mightily. We just associate the word Samaritan with good and, and helping and goodness. But in this culture, this is where we've got to take off our, our American glasses for just a moment, put on our, 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 our Hebrew glasses in the first century. A Samaritan was not a person that you would have considered good. The phrase, good Samaritan's an oxymoron. This is a person that was a despised half-breed of person, a lesser class of people that the Jewish people had intermingled with other races and basically produced the Samaritans. So the Jewish people saw them as a watered-down race. They were not worth interacting with. A good, honorable Jewish person would not have had anything to do with a Samaritan. And that's the person Jesus uses in his story. 
It's this Samaritan that comes by and shows compassion and takes care of him. Verse 34, it goes on to say that this Samaritan put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. Not only does he take care of him, he goes above and beyond. He goes out of his way. I don't know where this inn was in relation to his road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I don't even know for sure where this man was headed. He may have been going beyond Jericho. He may not have been going as far as the inn. He may have gone an extra few miles to take this guy. But he drops him off, pays for it, says, I'm going to come back tomorrow, and if I owe anything else, let me know. I want this man to be fully taken care of, doesn't know who he is whatsoever, but yet he goes above and beyond to take care of him. Verse 36, Jesus continues the story like this. He asks the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy shown on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus flips this script around here. See, he's expecting the neighbor to be the one that is the easiest one to identify. But Jesus does this all the time. He doesn't often give a simple and straightforward answer. Often he flips it completely on the person who's asking and shows them not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. And I think about how this flows in this story, because often when it comes to helping people, we don't mind to do it so long as it meets certain conditions. But I think sometimes we do it wondering what is going to happen to me as a result of this. Do I have time to do this? Am I going to be running late to work or to a meeting if I help somebody? How much is this going to cost me? Do I have the the resources available? Or maybe you might ask the question, what is somebody going to think of me? Martin Luther King had a great quote on this, this story. He said, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Maybe that's a question you've asked. Maybe you've asked it legitimately. Maybe you're really concerned and and sincere when you say, man, if I really start associating with this person, what are they going to think of me? What's my church going to think of me? What are my my small group going to think of me? What's my pastor going to think of me if I welcome this person into my home? Are they going to look like I'm okay with all that? Or is it going to look like I'm compassionate and I care because I love this person because of that? See, I think of it like this. If we want to passionately love our neighbor as ourselves, we must be willing to break down barriers. And these are barriers often that we build or that we allow society to build around our hearts and our lives. And I think that's where sometimes it can can get tricky for us to learn to stand on your convictions and to stand on the truth of Scripture and what it says but show love and show compassion and truly care for those around you. The gospel is summed up in those four words, love God and love people. And I think about that, that's not just a catchy saying in in this story, but that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the, the law summed up in a nutshell. It's not simply a suggestion from Jesus. It's the core and the essence of his ministry and the core and the essence of the church and how we can help further his kingdom in our world. Loving your neighbor, regardless of, of who, or, who he or she is or what he or she stands for, it means that you're beginning to understand the love of God for you in your life because you 
I, I think we have a hard time fully grasping exactly what God's love means for us. See, I think we look at, at John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? And we look at that. And it's easy to ask the question, if God's love was only for the, the people who deserved it, who would have it? Well, the answer is simple, none of us, because none of us deserve it. I certainly don't, you don't. But I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, where he says, God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, for me, brings me so much comfort, because it could very easily say, God set up this, this plan. His love for you is there, and when you get your act together, He'll send Jesus to the cross and die for you. Now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Often for us, we're willing to love people, but there's, there's conditions to that. And you may say, well, yeah, my love's unconditional. Well, maybe you think it is. Maybe you want it to be. But all of us, I think, somewhere have a limit. And yes, there are some people who make loving them very, very difficult there are some people who they do all that they physically and mentally and emotionally can to make it hard to love them. But there are some people, there's some people that might be hard for you to love just because they're different. Maybe because they don't do what you do or, or, or think like you think. And you may say, oh man, if, if they, would just, they would just do this, I'd love them. If they would just do that and stop doing that over there and start doing this, I would, would love them. That's not how it works. That's not how it works, folks. Understanding that God loves you and seeks you and welcomes you in your broken and sinful state, no matter how many times you might have rejected God or run away from God, that should be a reminder that nobody is beyond your love. Nobody's beyond your love, because I can promise you nobody's done to you what you've done to God. Nobody's done to me what I've done to God. But yet I want to passionately love my neighbor as myself. And I want that for you all, too. So how, how do we do this? Well, I've, I've got some stuff in your notes here we're going to look at. Because I think to answer the question, how can we love our neighbor as ourself, we need to see what love is. And so to do that, I have just 11 points that we're going to go over this morning. Nothing. <laughs> no, we'll go. These are, these are quick. Some of you are like, 11 points? Where's Brad? Let's get him back up here quickly because... <laughs> This is going to get crazy. No, I, I just sat down and I went through the story, looking at what the, the Good Samaritan has done here. Eleven things out of this story that tell us what love is. These are quick. If I go too fast on these, let me know it and I can send you a copy of what these look like. But eleven things he tells us or shows us about what love is, I think will help us understand and be able to answer the question, how can I passionately love my neighbor as myself? Here's the first. Love is proactive. Love doesn't sit around and wait, it's proactive. Again, in the story here, the Samaritan man saw this man and went to take care of him before he even knew what was going on. John, 1 John chapter 3, it says, Let us not love with words or speech, but actions and in truth. It's not always about what we say, it's about what we do and the heart behind that. Maybe you've heard the phrase, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? That's basically what this is stating here. When you see a need, you go get a need. Number two, love is observant. It's observant. Again, this guy saw somebody in need, didn't wait to be asked. He just responded and went and took care of the need. I love seeing this from kind of those first two points together all the time. You see somebody slip and fall in public, and, and somebody's very quick to reach a hand down and pick them up. They don't know who they are. 
They don't know what this person stands for. They don't know how they voted in the last election. And they're quick to pick him back up anyway. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. Love is observant. Jesus was observant. Matthew chapter 9, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He saw the need, and he went and took care of people. Number three, love is compassionate. Again, it says here in the story, the Samaritan man saw this man that was beaten, and he took pity on him. Here's the thing about compassion, though, folks. Compassion requires empathy and effort. Requires both. Colossians 3, it says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Man, who can say I've got those five things in my life? If you can, man, you're doing well. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against somebody, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Love is compassionate, folks. Number four, love is responsive. It's responsive. Again, he sees the man, he sees the need, and he takes care of it. Takes the man uh, to an inn, has his wounds treated. He responds to what's there. In Galatians 5, it says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. It was responsive. He saw what needed to be done, and he took care of it. Number five, law, uh, love is costly. Love is costly. It says in verse 35 how much he paid and how much he was willing to pay to take care of this guy. Think about that, because sometimes it's easy to take care of something initially, but again, we've got our limits because I've got a, I've got a big weekend planned. I've got, you know, we're, we're doing something fun this weekend, and I've been putting that money back, you know, to... to Take my family to go do this or that. Sometimes a need might take priority over that. In Acts 20, Paul tells the people, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Number six, love is inopportune. It's inopportune. Yes, yeah, sometimes... Sometimes you're going to know that, that I need help. I'm going to, going to say, hey, we're doing a project at my house this weekend. Can you come? You'll schedule that in. But sometimes I might call you at the drop of the hat and say, hey, are you, I need you right now. Can you be there? Can you drop what you're doing and be there? Because sometimes when we need to show love the most, it's not at a time that's the most convenient for us. I think about stories I've heard from friends of mine who went through love and loss. So some friends of ours from back home that were kind of a mentor couple to, to couples our age. It struggled for years and years to get pregnant, couldn't conceive, and when they finally did, after a few months, there was a miscarriage. And ladies, if you've been through that, guys too, but ladies, if you've been through that, you know how devastating that can be, especially after the struggle to conceive. And, and, and Chuck tells the story that, that some other friends named Kyle and Lisa came by, and he said it was at the drop of a hat. They were in the middle of something, they just dropped it and they showed up. And he said, I don't remember a thing that they told us that night. I just remember they were there. They did what they needed to do. They, they took care of their friends, their family. They loved them. Speaking of love, it's also healing. Love is healing, number seven. Again, the good Samaritan man made sure that this man was brought back to health. Love can be physical, physically healing, but let's be honest, often when we really truly need each other, it's not physical healing we have in mind, it's emotional healing, or maybe it's even spiritual healing. And you may say, well, how can we help each other spiritually? I know a lot of people who have lost faith 
Because when it boiled down to it, somebody wasn't there for them, therefore the church wasn't there for them, therefore God wasn't there for them. When we respond as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ to somebody, especially when it's inopportune or when it's costly, I mean, there's healing that can take place there. And sometimes just a simple text or phone call can go so far into helping somebody out. Love brings us together. Love binds us and holds us together. It says in Colossians 3 that over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Number eight, love is sacrificial. I already said it was costly, yes, but it's more than just costly, it's sacrificial. To love, you must be willing to give something up. For this man, he sacrificed quite a bit. He sacrificed his finances, his time, his energy, his, his resources. Folks, he also, he also sacrificed his dignity. He gave up his dignity because just like no honorable Jewish man would be seen serving a Samaritan, well, a Samaritan certainly wouldn't return the favor because that's going to look bad on him. So again, ask the question, who's somebody you would help that might look bad on you if you did? Because that's what the story here is all about. That's what the story here is all about. Love will cost you something. Sometimes it'll cost you a lot of something. Who are you willing to give that up for? Number nine, love is communal. It brings together, and I'm going to dive much more into this topic next week, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this here. Love brings together. Okay, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, let's not consider how we uh, may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the day more as you see the day approaching. Love brings people together, brings neighborhoods, families, friends, and brings strangers together. You think about love for the, the chiefs, for example. How many people did that bring together over the last few months? How many people were at the parade with people you didn't know? Bound by what? A common love. What if we had that same love for Jesus? How can that bring us together with people around us? Number 10, love is promising. Love is promising. Again, the Samaritan man makes sure the innkeeper would also be taken care of. Not just the man that was beaten, but the innkeeper. Hey, take care of him. It may cost you more than I gave you. I'll come back and make sure you're taken care of too. It's almost like you took somebody to, to a place of need and said, here's my credit card. You put whatever you need to put on there to make sure they're okay. And hey, compensate yourself for your time too. He didn't just see a need. It wasn't just a random act of kindness. He followed up on it. And he followed through with it because he knew that love isn't confined to just a moment of service here. And finally, number 11, love is merciful. It's merciful. Go back to the end of the story when Jesus said, which one of these is the actual neighbor? And what does he say? The one who showed mercy. That's what we get here. Because that's what God did for us. And it said back in, in Romans 8, or sorry, Romans 5, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But in John 3, 16, it goes with the full description of God's love. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's the greatest example of love this world has ever seen. And again, it wasn't while we had our act all together and had it all figured out. It was while we were broken, while we were messy, while we were wandering aimlessly in the desert, that's when God told Jesus it's time. 
You go and you fulfill my plan. And that is, is the ultimate sign of love. That's mercy. Mercy is not getting what you actually deserve. And that's what love does. Love is showing somebody kindness that they don't deserve. And more specifically, it's not giving them what they do deserve. When they might deserve being shunned or having a wall put up or being pushed away or being rejected, love pushes all that to the side and it brings them in anyway. Love offers grace. And here's the thing about love. Love leads to compassion and compassionate love is contagious love. Compassionate love is contagious love. I think about contagious love and what that looks like and how that operates in our life and what compassion has to do with that and what mercy and grace have to do with that. And I'm pulled back to a statement Jesus made that that often we view from a different angle and a different lens. It's, It's a statement Jesus made we call the golden rule. When he said in Matthew 7, in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. Often we view this as kind of a reversal. I don't want somebody to punch me in the face, so I'm not going to go punch somebody else in the face. It's more like the, the, the negative or the anti of what we're going to do with things here. But I think we view this actually from the other side of the spectrum here. What do I want somebody to do for me? Okay, I'm going to do that for somebody else. If I want somebody to bring me lunch, maybe I should take somebody else to lunch. If I want somebody to write a nice uh, card or a word of encouragement to me, I'm going to write a card or a word of encouragement to somebody else. It's paying something forward, maybe before it's even been paid to you. And, and folks, I'm all for paying back an act of kindness. You do something nice for me, I'll probably do something nice in return, but I try to do something for somebody else as well too. Because if we just exchange niceties between each other, who benefits? I mean, we do, yeah, but who else? But if I do something nice for you, don't do it back to me. Do it for somebody else. Pass it on to somebody who needs it. Pass it on to somebody whose heart might be hurting, who needs just a little bit of love in their life because we don't always know what somebody's going through. We can love them anyway. Again, compassionate love is contagious love, but contagious love can't spread if it doesn't start. It has to start somewhere, so it might as well start with you. So here's a simple takeaway for you today. You want to passionately love your neighbor as yourself, then start investing in the lives of your neighbor this week. And you might ask the question, who's my neighbor? Again, to a a Jewish person, the Samaritan would have been the absolute last person they would have considered for that. So who's that for you? Who's your Samaritan? Who's the Samaritan in your life? Because that is who Jesus would say is your neighbor. Summer's coming quickly. Nice weather's coming quickly. There are going to be plenty of opportunities to invest in the lives of those around you. We we get those longer days, those warmer temperatures. We get outside more. We're going to have cookouts, people over. Great opportunity to invite that neighbor. Maybe you don't even know them yet. Maybe you just know they're different. You don't normally associate with them. Bring them over anyway. What kind of service can you do for them coming up in the coming, coming weeks and months? Man, teachers are hitting their grind coming out of spring break. There's two weeks pedal to the metal to the end of the year. How can you be helping them, students, school administrators, or helping people just prepare for the summer that's coming? Who can you passionately love and invest in their lives so you can show them the same mercy and grace that God has shown to you? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful that he loved me 
when I most certainly did not deserve it. Grateful that he loved us when we most certainly did not deserve it. And God, I just pray, God, that you would give me, I don't want to say the ability because I think I already have it, just give me the mindset to put it to work, to share that same love you showed me to others, to those around me, that I could passionately love those around me, love my neighbor as myself. God, we're so grateful for that love, that love that redeemed and restored, that love that brought us grace, that brought us mercy. And God, you did not wait for me to put it all together first. You did it anyway. God, today as we are, if somebody's searching for that love from somebody else, Lord, help them, help them to feel loved. God, the rest of us, if we're looking for somebody we can share that love with, let that person come into our lives or at least into our focus, we would see them. God, so we would always be aware of what you've done for us so we can do the same for others. We're so grateful for your son. We pray in his name.